0: Hey, it's Erin O'Toole, host of Colorado Edition. Before we get started, I just wanted to say thank you for listening. As we begin the long, slow transition out of the pandemic, we are following along closely to bring you the news and stories that matter from around our state. We are able to do that thanks to the financial support we get from listeners like you. Now, we know not everyone can afford to take out a membership right now or make a one-time gift, but if you can, it helps make it possible for everyone to keep listening to Colorado Edition and for new listeners to find our show. You'll find more information on how to donate at our website, KUNC.org. And thanks again. Now, here's today's show.
1: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we get the latest on the state's COVID-19 vaccination efforts.
0: Plus, we hear about summer camps. They're returning after being largely shut down last year.
2: For a lot of kids in Colorado, summer camps are the highlight of their summers. They're where they learn new skills. They're where they are opened up to a whole bunch of new
0: interests.
1: And we hear about the importance of coping with trauma after tragic events.
0: That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole.
1: And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Some COVID-19 vaccine providers in Colorado have started administering the Johnson & Johnson shot again after a two-week pause.
0: The state's health department issued guidance to local hospitals and pharmacies over the weekend, saying the company's vaccines are safe and highly effective. The CDC panel that reviewed concerns about rare but serious blood clots from the vaccine said its benefits far outweigh the risk.
1: The restart of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine comes as more than two and a half million Coloradans have already gotten at least one dose. KUNC's Matt Bloom has been following the rollout of the vaccine here in Colorado and is with us now for another update. Hey, Matt. Hey, Henry. So let's begin with the impact of the Johnson & Johnson pause, and I suppose now the restart. Bring us up to speed. What do we need to know? Well, the pause
3: has mainly just resulted in a lot of delayed vaccinations over the past two weeks. And since it's a one-dose vaccine, this has been especially helpful in serving people in harder-to-reach rural communities in our state and people who are experiencing homelessness, for example. Certain clinics that serve those populations have been hit harder than some of the larger hospital systems on the Front Range were. Some clinics are still updating things like consent forms for patients with more information about this rare blood clotting risk before they start administering them again. But most who have the Johnson & Johnson vaccine should start again this week. Overall, the Johnson & Johnson vaccines are a smaller portion of the state's supply compared to Moderna and Pfizer. So because it was such a short pause and a relatively small percentage of our total doses, our rollout in Colorado still seems to be on
1: track. And how much progress have we made as a state? Can you give us an idea of sort of where we're at in terms of getting the population vaccinated? The latest numbers from the state's health department show we are
3: making a lot of progress, actually. So far, over two and a half million people have gotten at least one dose of vaccine. Over one and a half million are fully immunized now. We've also seen our weekly supply from the federal government increase dramatically over the past couple months, which has helped a lot to address some of the issues people were having around getting appointments. We're now doing about 30,000 shots a day now. And about half of the 16 and up population in Colorado has been vaccinated so far with at least one dose.
1: So things seem to be going well. Are we seeing any benefits yet from a widely vaccinated population?
3: Yeah, uh, earlier this month, Governor Polis, if you remember, handed the job of implementing COVID restrictions over to counties at the local level. And this was a sign for a lot of public health leaders that the end is hopefully near for a lot of these capacity restrictions and whatnot that we've been living with for the past year. In Larimer County, for example, over half of the population now has gotten at least one dose. The case numbers are down locally. I spoke with Corey Wilford from the county's Department of Public Health and Environment, and she says that their next goal is trying to get to this really important number of 65% of the population vaccinated.
4: We're confident that when we see that 65%, we'll see the cases drop off off enough to um, remove some of those restrictions and start really getting back to normal.
3: (laughs) The state is expecting to hit that 65% mark, which, as she said, is really important before Memorial Day.
1: Well, Matt, you've been following this vaccine rollout for several months now, several months still yet ahead. What are you going to be looking out for?
3: Well, first, the data shows us that we still have some pretty wide disparities in our vaccine rollout in Colorado as well as across the country. Hispanic and Latino residents are getting just under 10 percent of our vaccines when they're over 20 percent of Colorado's population. So a pretty big disparity there. So I'm talking to community organizers and experts about what we're missing right now. And and what I'm hearing is a larger investment in community-focused health events might be needed this summer in order to close that gap further. Second, kind of on that same point, we're now at a point where our supply of vaccines has caught up with demand And clinic appointment slots aren't filling up as quickly. There's still a lot of people left who haven't gotten a shot, who might be more hesitant than all the people who rushed to get one earlier this year. So it'll be interesting to see how the state addresses that group, as well as how long it takes us to reach that goal we've all been waiting for, which is herd immunity in Colorado.
1: KUNC's Matt Bloom, thanks so much. You're welcome. And if you're looking to get a COVID-19 vaccine appointment here in northern Colorado, we've got a guide available on our website. It includes updated information about where to find walk-in appointments as well. You can check it out at KUNC.org.
0: Summer camp is a staple for many families, with activities like hiking, horseback riding, and more forming a treasured centerpiece of summer break. The pandemic prompted a lot of these camps to go quiet last year. But now, camp operators across Colorado are ready to get back into action. Over the weekend, the CDC issued updated guidance for youth camps planning to open this summer, although the agency says that guidance is meant to supplement, not replace, any state and local rules. Erica Brunlin and Michael Booth wrote about this for the Colorado Sun, and they're here now with more on some of the changes campers can expect. Thank you both for joining us.
5: Thanks for having us on. Great to
2: be here, Erin.
0: Give us a sense of the impact that the summer camp shutdown had last year. And I want to find out both in terms of lost revenue for these camp operators, but also how it affected kids and parents.
2: I interviewed Casey Klein, who's president of the Colorado Camps Network, and that's an association of residential camps in the state. That association estimates that resident camps across Colorado took a $45 million hit last year, which is pretty substantial. Klein's own camp, Geneva Glen Camps, suffered a $1.3 million loss last year. And so you see a lot of camps that really had significant financial devastation. Some camps did try and stay open. They pivoted And tried to operate with health protocols in place. So you had some camps that instead of catering to individual kids, what they did is they catered to individual families. And instead of having a bunch of kids in a cabin, they would stick a family in a cabin. You had other camps that took their offerings from their own sites and went into families' homes and tried to do as many hands-on activities with families as they could. You had a lot of camps trying to still operate in some capacity, but at the end of the day, these camps just could not provide the traditional offerings that they would in other summers. And I think that had significant consequences for both kids and parents. For a lot of kids in Colorado, summer camps are the highlight of their summers. They're where they make camp friends. They're where they learn new skills. They're where they are opened up to a whole bunch of new interests. And so, for a lot of these students, they suffered much like they did during the school year without being able to see their friends, make those connections, and explore those activities. I think, along with that, parents also suffered. You know, we saw a lot of parents during the school year struggling to balance both their own workloads. And their kids' workloads that extended into the summer because parents no longer had the break that they were used to in the summer when they could send their kids off to the camp. So we saw struggles on both the parts of parents and kids.
0: This year looks a lot different, of course. Uh, We just have a lot more knowledge about how the virus is spread and how it's likely not spread. Mike, what are some of the big changes that campers and their families should expect?
5: Some of the ways we're gonna try to make it work this year involved going down in capacity a bit, up to 30% down in capacity so that people are a little more spread out. They, in some cases, lay their spots out uh, literally for the kids to stick to in group activities. Some of them are doing fewer sessions or fewer classes at once so that kids can make sure they're spread out and to make sure that employees are focused on the right things. And then let's talk about Denver Zoo. So one thing they're going to be doing is there's that roundabout that you can drop off people at the front of the zoo gates and they're going to have parents instead of walking their kids all the way in holding the hands and dropping off at a registration table and doing that whole mixing thing which seems normal but now this year is exactly the wrong thing to do. They're going to have parents drive up and literally hand their kid out the door, uh, out the window, whatever it takes and have the zoo staffers take them inside.
0: Are vaccines going to be required for staff?
5: They are not doing that and they're not sure they can. That's an ongoing debate in all, among all employers over the next few months is whether they can require it for their employees. Because it's still an emergency approval status for all the vaccines, that kind of puts it in a different category. And so the employers feel like they can't, even in healthcare settings, have said that they're not gonna require it right now. They're of course encouraging it and not making it a condition of employment, but certainly making it uh, strong encouragement and getting as many as they can. And most of them say that almost all of their employees are doing it.
0: Well, I'm curious, who has been involved in crafting the, the health and safety guidance that's going to you know, make these camps look a little bit different this year?
2: The Colorado Camps Network, which again is that statewide association, has really taken the lead in trying to pull together health and safety protocols and guidelines for camps this summer. That association has worked a lot with state entities, including the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, to figure out the best ways to operate camps this summer. Casey Klein, who's president of that network, told me that one of the big discussions has been around capacity and cohorting. And initially, there were a lot of discussions about instituting strict capacities at summer camps this summer. But summer camps really urged the state to veer away from that because they said that if if they had strict capacity requirements in place that could bankrupt these summer camps after they just experienced so much financial loss last year so the conversation then pivoted to cohorting which we've seen a lot of schools in colorado facilitate in the last year plus now so basically camps will have small groups of students together they will pair those groups of students with counselors, try and keep them as separate and on their own as possible so that there's not intermingling. And so that's going to be one of the really big ways that camps try to operate this summer.
0: And I know this is all kind of new, but what are you hearing from parents and kids? What's been the response so far?
2: I think parents and kids are just crying almost for these summer camps to come back kids have endured so much disruption in the last more than a year now with school and with last summer. So they just want a sense of normalcy like most all of us do.
0: Erica Brunlin and Michael Booth, reporters for The Colorado Sun. You will find a link to their piece on the return of summer camps at KUNC.org. Erica and Mike, thank you so much for talking with us.
5: Thanks for your time, Aaron. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Erin.
1: You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC.
0: It's been five weeks since the shooting at a Boulder King Supers grocery store that left 10 people dead. Prosecutors have filed more than 50 criminal charges against the alleged shooter. But beyond any legal or legislative responses, there is also a focus on helping people cope with the aftermath of such a horrific event.
1: Mental health care and support are crucial for people who have survived traumatic events like mass shootings, including first responders. But experts also recognize that trauma can affect people who weren't physically there on the scene. Here to talk with us about what coping after a shooting looks like is police and public safety psychologist Dr. Maria DeVoskina. Maria, thanks for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me. To start, can you
1: tell us a little bit about what you do as a police and public safety psychologist?
4: I actually work for a firm called Nicoletti Flater Associates, and the work that we do there is really focused on working with first responders, consultation, crisis intervention with first responders, but also, in general, we do a lot of trauma recovery, we do a lot of work in the violence prevention area. And over the years, our firm has responded to the majority of the mass casualty events that have occurred in Colorado, starting with the Columbine shooting
1: You also mentioned that you worked with first responders. What can recovery look like for someone in their shoes?
4: For first responders, you know, there's a lot of different things we want to put in place, right? The first thing we usually put in place is a psychological debrief in the immediate aftermath. And we really want to set the ground and provide the foundation for post-traumatic growth Rather than post traumatic stress disorder.
1: You mentioned kind of a different way to frame post traumatic stress disorder. Can you ever really recover from an experience like this?
4: It depends on how you ask the question, right? So survivors in particular of of a mass casualty event, they're never going to forget. There's no magic words or magic pill that, you know, is out there that we can say, okay, this is just going to make all your memories of this event go away. The analogy I kind of like to give for trauma is, is kind of a ghost or haunted house analogy. So if you imagine Living in a haunted house where you're maybe constantly hypervigilant, a ghost could pop out at any moment from any door. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of what living that sort of trauma might be like.
1: How has our understanding of trauma changed, even just in recent times, maybe the last 20 years since Columbine? What do we know about trauma now that we maybe didn't know then?
4: one of the biggest changes has been of course introducing vicarious trauma so we used to think that only is it if you're directly impacted by an event right you're you're the person that it's happening to that that's gonna potentially create some traumatic symptoms right now we know that folks like first responders and therapists you know folks that hear trauma stories or, you know, even if it's not happening to them directly, we know that vicarious trauma can affect a person just as much as a direct exposure to a traumatic event. So I think that's been a big addition and expansion to our understanding of trauma.
1: I understand that another part of your work is trying to identify and stop people who may be planning a event that ends up in mass casualties, something like a shooting like we're talking about, How do you do that work?
4: One thing that's really important to know is that these attackers don't just snap. so there's kind of a myth out there that you know somebody maybe wakes up in the morning something pissed them off and they go on a rampage right that's not what happens we know that there is months or even years that take place between when somebody first starts kind of developing a grudge or what we call a perceived injustice and where that builds from that into an attack plan and eventually carrying out an attack so that means there's months and sometimes years to prevent and intervene with the person that's planning an attack. We also know that these attackers broadcast 100% of the time. In all cases, when we look at any past attacks, we know that attackers have broadcasted their intention in some sort of way. 80 to 90% of the time, that's actually with verbal threats. Okay, and though often those threats are veiled, we do know that they verbally express, most of, their t- most of the time they will verbally express before they carry out this attack. So really when we look at prevention, If we know somebody's on our radar and they have been a person of concern, we want to make sure we intervene with that person. So this is why in schools, at least in Colorado, systems like Safe to Tell have been extremely, extremely successful in terms of thwarting attacks, right? So the first part is really the reporting piece. Um, Once we are able to educate um, in this case, you know, students, teachers, staff um, and say, hey, here's the kind of things you should be reporting, right? Actually, we find that people are more than willing to report, right? And that's how, that's, that's really the first step, right? Is detecting folks of concern, right? After that, we go into and make sure we wanna intervene. Whether that means we speak to that person of concern, we put a threat management plan in place, maybe that person goes into therapy, but we want to make sure we intervene and then we monitor. We don't just say, okay, we're going to conduct a threat assessment and now, you know, this person is high, low or medium risk, right? We want to get away from that, in fact, and we want to say, here's a concerning behavior and here's how we're going to make sure to monitor it.
1: What do you think any given community across Colorado can do to maybe on a more personal level, identify and prevent potential issues?
4: I think the biggest thing is, as a people, we're a little bit conflict avoidant. So if we see somebody you know, maybe they're doing something they're not supposed to do. We think to ourselves, well, you know, I don't really want to address that with them because, you know, I don't really want to get in the middle of it. Or what happens is we do what we call a unilateral assessment. So what that means is you're assessing, you're looking at this person's behavior and, and you're thinking to yourself, well, that's probably not that concerning, right? But, you know, maybe you saw this person trying to purchase firearms, right? And then somebody else, heard this person make a threat towards their boss and somebody else saw something else, you know, that was concerning. So all of these people individually are making this assessment saying, well, that's not that concerning. And also, you know, is it really my business to intervene? So I think one of the biggest things I would recommend is that folks talk to their HR departments and their leadership and ask, you know, what, do we have in place in terms of threat management? Is there a way I can report concerning behavior? Because what we want for schools and businesses and different organizations is we want there to be kind of a vortex for information. So this can be a single person or a team of people and their job is to monitor concerning behavior. The vortex, right, can take a look and see, okay, We now have three concerning reports, and then we have to act from there.
1: Dr. Maria DeVoskina is a police and public safety psychologist. Maria, thank you so much for talking with us about
4: this. Thank you for having me.
0: The new movie, The Father, has been honored all over the world, including six Oscar nominations and a win for Anthony Hopkins as Best Actor on Sunday. It tells the story of a man in the throes of dementia. For KUNC film critic Howie Moffiewicz, who teaches film and television at CU Denver, The Father leaves viewers off balance and deliberately.
6: Anthony, Anthony Hopkins, doesn't know why his daughter Anne, Olivia Colman, has come to visit. He's irritated, and when the talk turns to how he drove a woman away from the apartment, he's angry. He didn't like her, and he didn't know why she was in his home anyway. It's clear that Anthony's losing his memory. In the next sequence, Anthony sees a stranger in the apartment. Do you know Anne? Are you a friend of hers? I'm speaking to you! Do you know Anne? I'm a husband. A husband? Yes. But since when? Uh, coming up for ten years? It doesn't connect at first that this place is not the first apartment, so you're a bit confused and unsettled, just like Anthony. Most movies about memory loss, they are now many, are melodramas. Your heart goes out to the person suffering and to their families. The movie descends into ever deeper grief and sadness and drives you to yearn for cure and relief. But Florian Zeller's The Father is not melodrama. It's sometimes funny, sometimes annoying. Anthony can be a real irritation. And the movie isn't accommodating. The second department looks enough like the first that you do something like a nervous double-take, again like Anthony. Situations and characters shift without warning. Anne tells her father that she's leaving London to live in Paris with her boyfriend. At other moments she's married and that's the point. The film forces the audience to share Anthony's confusion. It's a pleasure, if that's the right word, to avoid the dreary decline of many other Alzheimer's films, the slow descents and unrelenting sadness. Anthony's mind jumps around in time from not so bad to much worse to not so bad again. The movie gives you little chance to feel the misery because you're busy trying to get oriented. The movie's crusty and sometimes funny, and all of this keeps you off balance. Movies about diseases are tricky. Filmmakers have to be respectful, but they can bog down in their respect and lose sight of the character of their characters, and all they wind up with is mush. It may be cynical to say, but movies about diseases get lazy and let the disease do the work of filmmaking. The simple mention of Alzheimer's shoves audiences into sadness and worry, and raw feeling takes over while the movie just lets it happen. In 2001, Mike Nichols directed Emma Thompson in a TV movie called Wit. Thompson plays a college teacher already in a hospital dying of cancer. But the film goes way beyond a vision of a woman's decline. Wit makes you feel as if death itself faces a mammoth struggle if it wants to take this brilliant, spirited person. Thompson's character shows a ton of knowledge and creativity, and as the title says, Wit, as she refuses to fade away slowly, she's vibrant to the end at eighty-three anthony hopkins brings his rich welsh voice and remarkable screen presence to the father he's powerful he's a force to deal with daughter Anne can't just toss him aside and ignore the strength this man has mustered throughout his life the kicker though is that what's on screen may only be in anthony's mind You don't know if what you see takes place in some actuality right now, or if these are Anthony's thoughts, or if he still has memory to relive these moments, or if this is what might go on in the mind of a man suffering dementia. The father makes you wonder if the intellect of a person with Alzheimer's might still be this robust, although hidden from outsiders. It makes one think maybe we simply don't know what's happening inside such a person. And, of course, the Father reminds us that much about life is utterly mysterious. The Father is certainly a sad picture at times, but it's no quiet descent into emptiness. For KUNC, I'm Howie Mavshevitz.
0: That's our show for today. On the next Colorado Edition, we'll explore how the 2020 census results will impact the makeup of Congress for the next decade. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff
1: includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer.
0: Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.